real enforced lockdown. And some states have been doing better than others, but uh, as, a, as a whole, the situation still looks very grim. It's been very hard to engage the population. And even now, uh, state governors who were uh, doing quite a good job some time ago, decided to reopen the economy. So uh, we haven't even got, gotten out of the first wave. And we are already talking about a second wave, which actually actually doesn't exist. We have uh, one, eight, one wave only. It's like a tsunami, really. Uh, we never got out of the first one. Wow. And how do you think then, given everything you've just told us, what is the attitude of the everyday Brazilian? It just, what comes to mind is who is bearing the brunt of this pandemic? Um, comes to mind the impact on Brazil's different populations, vulnerable populations, and even the impact on Brazil's indigenous communities. Yeah, uh, it's uh, the, the country is very divided, Pablo. So when you when you say the average Brazilian, the average Brazilian here is uh, we are in such a polarized political situation that the average Brazilian actually divides into two main groups. The groups that the group that agrees with the government that it's just a minor flu. So they go out on the streets and shake hands and take selfies and hug other people and pretend that's nothing happening. And this is a considerable part of the population because they get the role model from the president himself. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other group who are people who are trying to, to collaborate and to, st to, to stay home and, uh, and practice social distancing and physical distancing and, and, and all the preventive measures. Uh, and, and of course, you have all the vulnerable populations. So indigenous populations, they are very vulnerable. They live in places where there's no healthcare system available and, and places that are difficult to reach. Some places you can only reach by boat or airplane. And, and so when these people get sick, it's very difficult to treat men or to remove them from their homes. And, and of course, communication is, isn't always that easy. So uh, there are some indigenous tribes that don't even speak Portuguese. They have their own language. And we have to translate every recommendation of social distancing and preventive measures into their language and try to, to talk to their leaders and explain how the pandemic works. So it's, it's been quite a challenge and it's been done by independent NGOs because the governments are, aren't really engaged with that kind of work. It's been hard here. I'd like to come back to that a little bit later, but um, focusing on the first thing you mentioned that how the population kind of divided into two camps. Um, I mean, we see that problem in science communication in different areas, but if we get back to the facts, um, let's say the Washington, Post published an analysis this past Sunday about how Brazil is now facing the coronavirus disaster scenario that almost everyone saw coming, except perhaps President Bolsonaro. Um, he's been very skeptical about the virus, and that's we've seen that in different types of media. So I, I guess I, we thought it'd be pertinent if you could tell us a little bit about how his skepticism differs from the skepticism that your institute promotes? Oh, it's totally different things. Uh, and the skeptic community uh, usually prefers the, to, to differentiate that between skepticism and denialism. So uh, skepticism is, is a healthy 
doubt is when you, you, you doubt things because you want evidence. You want everything to be evidence-based and you want to see the facts. And denialism is just the opposite of that, is that when you're presented with evidence, you're presented with the facts, and even in the face of evidence, you deny it. You see the evidence and you deny it. So it's the, it's the complete opposite of skepticism. And the, uh, but but uh, in the end, we use skepticism for the skeptic movement internationally. It's been uh, it's been there forever, and we see no reason to change it. So we try to change the other one. We try to to tell them no. What you're doing is denialism. So that's great. That's thank you for that description. Um, Following this thought process of what are the consequences of maybe not putting attention, not paying attention, can you tell us a little bit about Bolsonaro's role in creating this crisis that we're living? Did Brazilian's health officials see it coming and sound the alarm? Or has the denial, which you mentioned, been pervasive throughout his whole administration? Uh, I think... Uh... Yes, to both questions. Uh, health agents saw it coming, but there was not much they could do about it. You know that Bolsonaro has already fired two health ministers, and at the moment we have none. So we have been out of a minister for a month already during a pandemic, during the worst health crisis we ever faced. We have no health minister. And he fired the previous two because they didn't agree with him or about social distancing and about miracle medications that Bolsonaro promotes. So uh, he's always been uh, a science denialist. Uh, all throughout his government, he, he's a climate change denialist and he never cared for science and education. So we, we had our science budget cut in half <laughs> during his government. Not that it was much better before. Let's make that clear. It, uh, science was never a priority here in Brazil, but it's never been this bad. And and Bolsonaro, uh, he, he cut, so he, he has a total disregard for science and education. The Minister of Education, who, who is a close friend to the president, and they see eye to eye, unfortunately. So the Minister of Education has been accusing the universities of just promoting uh, naked parties for students who, who produce nothing for the society. Oh. So that's how they see us. They see us like a bunch of crazy students who go around naked and smoke weed and do nothing for the society. They don't understand that the universities are research centers right. and that we give back to the society in, law, in knowledge and technology and there wouldn't be a, a, a modern society without the universities and research institutes. So that's not, of course, not only in Brazil, but throughout the world. Well, mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very anti-science government from the beginning. Well, regardless of those anti-science sentiments that you're, that you're telling us about, now that the virus is seemingly undeniable, even to Bolsonaro, how is Brazil responding to this high death toll and growing number of infections? Because it feels like that is a re stark reality that regardless of what was said before, now countries must face. So is there testing, is there contract tracing, are hospitals well equipped? Um, it, it comes to mind, why, why is this death toll so high? Um, and I guess, can you talk a little bit about that? 
yeah, so there is no testing, no contact tracing. Some hospitals are, are well equipped. Brazil is a huge country, so it depends very much on the region, on the city, on the state. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, very rich states like Sao Paulo, where the hospitals are well equipped, especially the private hospitals, but even the public ones are very good. And then we have very small towns in, in the middle of the Amazon state where, of course, you have no hospitals at all. So it depends very much on the region. And uh, about testing and contact tracing, we do very few of those uh, because the federal government hasn't invested in importing uh, reagents to to build the tests here or even to, to import the tests equipment themselves. We have very few universities and research facilities that would be able to perform those tests safely with, uh, uh, with adequate personnel. So uh, we don't have the capacity really to, to mass test the population. So, and also we haven't been investing in that properly as, as we should. So we test very, very little. It, it's a shame. Even in Sao Paulo, uh, which is the state with the, uh, with the greater number of universities and research centers, we test very little. Uh, we should be testing much more and we do almost no contact tracing. So uh, it's been hard. But, but the first part of your question, you said there's no, there's no way that even Bolsonaro can deny it now because of, of so many deaths and the, number, and, and the number of cases rising. But still, yes, he denies it. And that's what denial is, is about. It's, it's like I said, you deny science, you deny the evidence that's standing just uh, in your face. And Bolsonaro, for instance, last week, he actually asked the population on, on national television, he said that people should break into the hospitals, break into the hospitals to check if this is true, if people are really sick, if people are really hospitalized because of COVID-19, because he didn't believe it to be true. And guess what happened next? People broke into hospitals. So it, it's it's unbelievable. He says something like that, and people listen to him, and which, that's the danger of it. Which which brings to mind other dubious claims. Uh, for example, I know Bolsonaro, like President Trump, has promoted some would think um, far fetched is comes to mind um, possible cures for COVID nineteen. Um, with both of them particularly enamored by hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. And so when you're telling me about this, what, what immediately also comes to mind is how has this stance harmed the country's response? Because if, if they're doing what their leaders instigate them to do, and then we hear these claims for a possible solution, how does this affect the population or how has this affected the population in Brazil? Yeah, that's the problem when you promote miracle cures. People believe you. And people believe Bolsonaro when he says that hydroxychloroquine works. Now he changed his mind a little bit and he went for a dewormer called Ivermectin. I don't know if you've heard about it, but that's also becoming a thing here in Brazil. So now we have two. We have hydroxychloroquine, which is now a standard protocol uh, for, for, the, for the national health system. 
even for pregnant women and children. That's, uh, uh, that's really unbelievable. At, at the same day when the FDA lifted the emergency use for mm -hmm. hydroxychloroquine in the US, here we passed it as a national protocol for children and pregnant women because before it was uh, they weren't allowed in the protocol so now it's there for everyone regardless of age and everyone can use it and now we have another drug that's called ivermectin it's a dewormer and a flea uh, medication so uh when the president himself endorses a miracle cure and he says uh it's just a minor flu uh, I don't even believe that it's true. Social isolation is not necessary. And look, here's the cure. What's people, how do people react to that? They go out on the streets as if nothing was happening because that's the message. The message is that we are exaggerating and even if it is true, we have the cure. So why should I bother? Why should I stay at home? Why should I, why should I not be working? And that's well, what happens in Brazil. Well, Natalia, having followed your work and appreciated a lot of uh, the things that you've done recently, um, I immediately go to this example of what happens when these um, claims that are not science-based find their way into policy. And I know that one of the major focuses for your institute is fighting against homeopathy and how that plays into the broader um, government stance and um, implementation of policy, government policies. Um, can you tell us why you're concerned about that in particularly and how this kind of like mirrors that reality in Brazil? Sure, uh, the first thing uh, uh, I have to say, I miss fighting homeopathy. It was much easier than what I'm doing right now. And at least it's, it, it, it's potentially harmless individually. People who, who, who take homeopathy are in no danger whatsoever as an individual. So I, I really miss that. But uh, we decided to, to fight not only homeopathy, but alternative medicine in general, because alternative medicine here in Brazil is offered at the healthcare system. We have a, a national healthcare system, which I think we are the largest country in the world to, to cater for, for the whole population with a national healthcare system. So we're very proud of, we, of it. We cater to 200 million people. And of course it's not perfect, but it works. And we uh, offer in this national healthcare system, we offer 29 modalities of alternative medicine that have no evidence to, uh, or, or of working. And still they are offered, they are paid for with taxpayers' money. So my institute uh, promotes uh, science-based public policies, and this is not science-based. So this is why uh, we, we have been so, we have, been conducting this effort to fight uh, pseudoscience in the healthcare system. And homeopathy and acupuncture are the only ones who, uh, which are actually endorsed by the Federal Board of Medicine. So they are considered practical uh, uh, mod uh, medical modalities here in Brazil. They are taught in medical schools and veterinary schools, uh, in, our, in, our, in our best universities, even in, in the University of Sao Paulo, which is the largest university in Latin America. 
So this is our main concern. We started with homeopathy because it's very popular in Brazil and it's endorsed by the Federal Board of Medicine. It's taught in our medical schools and it's offered in the healthcare system. So uh, it seemed to us that it was a good way to start to show that this kind of medicine doesn't work. It has no scientific background. There are lots of countries in the world that have already stopped using it and have removed it from their healthcare system. So Australia has done it, the UK has done it, France is doing it, Spain is doing it. And, and in the US, I know that you don't have a, a, a national healthcare system, a public one, but I know that you have a consumer rights law that, that demands that every homeopathic re remedy brings uh, in the prescription, this is not science-based or, or some kind of warning like that. Uh, and and so, so you are at least informing people that this medication is not science-based as the other ones that are approved by the FDA. And, and in Brazil, it's considered real medicine. So that's our main concern. When you consider something to be real medicine, it's very difficult to, to explain to the population that it's actually not. Which, which is, I think, the focus of this for um, professionals who work in science communication. Um, that this, uh, the worry that a lot, a lot of us have is how policies are made and how decisions at the highest levels are taken without a firm pro-science position. And so with this growing anti-science sentiment in Brazil, which I'm getting from our conversation, um, do you think that is this um, situation pushing people or convincing others to adopt Bolsonaro's positions on anti-science? Is it, or is the opposite happen? Will this stark reality of COVID-19 help to turn things around? Or do you think people are embracing the unproven treatments and just running with anti-science approaches? I can't tell right now, Pablo. I think, the, as I said, the country is really divided. So in a way, I see that people are, they, they, they are turning to science for answers. And maybe, maybe we can use the situation to really build up trust in science. Mm -hmm. And I hope we can do it. So I, I've been trying to. Uh, in a way, we have never seen so many scientists in, on, on, on national media, on TV, and on every newspaper. Uh, even I, 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 of course, I, I always work with science communication, but I've never been such a, on such a high demand here in Brazil. So I've been given interviews all, all, all day long about, about scientific issues on the pandemic. And so science is being at least taken into account by the general media. And I think this is really good because it, 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 it shows people that science is important. It shows the work that scientists are doing. It, it even shows who the scientists are because people uh, are not used to seeing scientists on TV. And, and so the, I think this is the good part. But on, on the other hand, you have the, the government itself promoting anti-science. So uh, I think uh, only time will tell. Let, let's, see, uh, let's see if we can make this opportunity an opportunity to, to, to show how science is important and, and, and that science works and that it is science that's going to lead us through this pandemic and out of it. 
but uh, uh, I, I, I remain a little bit skeptic about it, really. <laughs> yes, uh, um, everything resonates with you. Of course, you know that everything resonates with us at the Alliance. Um, we know that when it comes to science and health, people cling pretty tightly to their beliefs. Even when there's a lot of evidence around this, um, there's been a lot of studies, as you know, regarding this. Um, this can be true from climate change to GMOs to vaccines. So, and we've, we've certainly been doing some work in this area, but I want to ask you, how is your institute um, working to promote rational thinking in these times? So uh, what we do, Pablo, and I think it's very close to what you do, but of course you've been doing it longer and that's why I want to learn from you. <laughs> but uh, what we've been trying to do with the Question of Science Institute here in Brazil is to walk with information being available to the public uh, in a way that they can understand it. So it, it's, a, uh, it, it's a question of translating science into uh, a popular language and a language that anyone, even without a scientific background, can follow and can understand. So we've been doing this with the magazine. Uh, so we have an online magazine. It's called Question of Science, and it's free. It doesn't have any kind of paywall. We, we made a point of, of, of having a free online magazine so that really anyone can read it. And uh, it's edited by a very, uh, uh, very experienced uh, professional uh, scientific journalist. So he makes sure that the language is appropriate mm -hmm. and that people and, and that it's readable for anyone. And of course, we have uh, seminars and interviews and, and all the work that, uh, that we try to build with the regular media, with the national media as well. So this is what we do to get information available to the general public. And, and then, of course, we try to reach out to members of parliament and of the government to help them use science when they are working on regulations and laws and, and trying to make sure that these are science-based and not ideology-based. And I think this, this is the hardest part of our work. It's, it's much easier, of course, to, to, to make science available to the public than to convince members of parliament that they, that they have to trust science too. But with the pandemic, I think this is the good news. With the pandemic, uh, several members of parliament reached out to us because they wanted to understand the pandemic and then it was a good opportunity for us to show the, what the institute does and how we can help them of course we can help them now with the pandemic but we can help them with other issues after we get through this so i think it, it this was the good part that that all of a sudden these members of parliament and some members of the government reached out to us and say well okay we want your help we have to understand what's happening Right, and I think we have a question from the audience. Um, yeah, sure. We do, and it fits right into what you were just talking about, Natalia. Um, so Jason's wondering, what do Brazilian skeptics see as their role in improving the COVID-19 situation? Are they protesting government mismanagement and science denial? Are they doing science-based public safety outreach? What kind of projects are being organized? Yeah, you know, that's the hard 
part of it because it's been very lonely here in Brazil. Uh, we are the only institute in Brazil promoting skepticism and the skeptic Brazilian community is still very small. We've been trying to build it, but the institute is really young. We, we are only one year old and we've been trying to, to build the skeptic community in Brazil. So we have a, a very small community and although they are really engaged, uh, most of the work is being done by us, by the Institute itself. So we stick to the magazine and, uh, and we've been taking part in interviews and lives like this and several seminars. So we've, we've been trying really hard to get information out there. And the other thing that we did was uh, we filed uh, uh, a lawsuit against the government in the Supreme Court to try to remove the protocol for the, uh, that authorizes hydroxychloroquine as a national guideline. Uh, we're still waiting for that to, to develop. But, uh, and, and unfortunately, we did that on our own. We called every scientific society in Brazil to join us in this lawsuit, but they didn't want to. Uh, they were afraid of the government, they were afraid of retaliation. And so I think the most difficult thing here in Brazil is to build this community that it's really engaged and that feels that, that, this, that, that we can go into action. It's not only about talking, it's not only about outreach or science communication. There's more to it, we can act. But, but to act, we need to be together. And, and it was very frustrating, although of course I understand the motives of the scientific societies. Uh, I understand that there's reason to be afraid. The government has been really retaliating people who disagree. I mean, he fired two health ministers. So uh, although I understand them, I, I really wish we could build this together. And I'm going to keep on trying. I think uh, I, I, I can give them time and maybe in the future we can help them organize themselves so that we can build a, a bigger community. Well, it's a, it's a tough issue to, and it's a tough issue space to work in. Um, I, I think this is a good segue into, I, I also wanted to ask you if, to tell us a little bit about um, that price that you have to pay sometimes for taking on these issues and for trying to get out there and, and do the work. Um, what motivates you to keep doing this work? Because it's hard, um, it's time consuming, and I know a lot of people that I've met in this field have a real passion for it. And you strike me as one I want to ask you, what motivates you to keep doing this work? Uh, just before I answer that, uh... I just remembered, I said every scientific society, that's not true. Uh, my own society backed me up, microbiology society here in Brazil and a genomic society too. So I have to keep that in record. They were very brave. <laughs> they backed me up in the, in the lawsuit. And uh, about your other question, Pablo, yes, I'm very passionate about what I do. So that's what keeps me going. I really believe in promoting skepticism and rational thinking. I really believe that if we really push hard, maybe the next generations will be made up by children who can think and who don't take uh, anything lightly, uh, anything that they see on television or on social media, they are not going to be as gullible as the, as the present generation. And so I, I think this can be done. 
and I know that it's difficult and I know that it's very lonely work, as I said, because uh, it's not, uh, sometimes it's just not even that people don't want to join or they don't believe in the work, but it's hard work. Mm -hmm. And it's very frustrating, and you know that because you, you you've been doing it too, and, and and it is frustrating. But there was no one in Brazil doing this kind of work before the Institute Question of Science. Before we decided to to take it on uh, upon us to do it, uh, and uh, I I've seen other countries do it. So I know that it can be done. Uh, uh, for instance, when I said that Australia removed homeopathy from their national healthcare system and the UK did the same, I know that it can be done. It's just a matter of time and how much work you put into that. And, and I really believe that if we can accomplish that, we'll have, uh, we'll have people who can think by themselves maybe in some time our work will, will not even be needed anymore yeah. I, I hope <laughs> yeah yeah i agree completely i think well i think we've all seen how this pandemic has brought death suffering a lot of economic hardships um but but we have on the flip side we've seen how some even civil society organizations um have stepped up to fill that void that sometimes the governments are undercapacitated to fill. Um, so I guess to, we're almost nearing the end before we open up to possible questions for the audiences. But do you, you've mentioned that there may be a, a silver lining here that emerging from this, from the scientific community, from the world. Um, I guess, as you know, the Alliance for Science, we like to and we'd like to take every opportunity to allow our audiences to hear calls to action. So what would you think, is there anything you wanna um, put out there to the scientific community, to people who are interested in doing this work, who are interested in stepping up, taking part in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think it's, every, it's very important for people to realize that they can help by engaging with us in this fight. We need engagement from the population. We really need help. And help means help us share the material that we produce, help us share the articles from the magazine, help us on social media, or if you see anything that, 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 that strikes you as fake or as dangerous, you, you can bring it to us. You can denounce it and say, well, here question of science institute i saw this is this true so uh, uh, help us get the information and and help and help us spread good scientific information many times we see people that say oh you're doing such a great job mm -hmm. and i say thank you are you sharing our material because it's just not about complimenting me i i'm, I'm very glad for, for the compliment but i need people to, to help, I need people to engage. Uh, and sometimes I think that we are very passive. We see good things happening around us and we don't help them, we, do, we, we don't broadcast, we don't share what they're doing. And I think it's probably the same with, with your work. So there's lots of people who really admire what we're doing, but they don't realize how important they could be as multipliers of the message. So we need people 
to multiply the message, to, to pass the message on. And, and this means uh, small things like sharing, in, sh sharing information in your family group, in WhatsApp group, mm -hmm. or on any social media, or speaking about it on, 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 your, on your family reunions and gatherings and your friends' gatherings. Sometimes we just don't want to be that person, you know? We don't want to be, uh, oh, the, the, that person who always uh, talks about what's wrong and on what's right and when people start talking about astrology you there's always that one that says well you know that's not actually true so what i ask of people is please be that person because we need you we need you it's very lonely to be that person alone and we need you to be the one who actually brings scientific information to your friends, to your family. Yes, it can be annoying. And yes, maybe your family will kick you out of Sunday brunches, but anyway, they're not happening. So this is a good time to start. Yes, no, it's all right. I will, all right. I'll sacrifice my Sunday brunches. You convinced me. And I think a lot of the people who are looking at us are watching us agree um i think there's one more question from the audience if i'm not mistaken joan yes there is um so the question is how can the global south and the global north learn from each other to upscale the uptake of science outputs especially in agriculture Woo! wow i think uh in agriculture, maybe Pablo is best uh, is the best person to answer, really. But uh, I, I can talk about Brazil, of course. We're we are very agricultural country, uh, so agriculture in Brazil has always uh, has always been science based, and that's a good thing. But uh, the last uh, the past couple of years, we have been invaded by a movement called agroecology, which is very anti-science, anti-GMOs, anti-biotechnology, or anything that's modern and that really and that really helps agriculture. And we have a growing uh, anti-GMO feeling here in Brazil. So uh, if we, uh, I don't know if it's a north and south issue because i think it's really it's a worldwide thing i think pablo can help me here but this feeling uh, also exists in the us and europe and i think brazil is a reflection really of what happens in the us and europe so uh all us and european regulations they they have an effect here in brazil and when europe decides that they are not going to allow gmos or genome editing or anything like that it resonates here very strongly even in a in a very agricultural based economy so i think this these things are very intertwined what do you say pablo i would agree i think it's agricultural policies are so intertwined with trade, with um, local um, communities, the work local communities do, the local trade. It's very intertwined. So I think it, it, anti-science sentiments are pervasive as we talked about before. I think if we don't stay vigilant and if we don't take actions in those spaces where decisions are made and we're not talking out, um, a lot of the work the Alliance does, I think is trying to get scientists to these to these events, these um, spaces where people make decisions. So um, I would say that that anti-science sentiment is worldwide, 
and it can seep into the different decision-making spaces that may be critical. So it's important for us to work together, to work across, uh, across the global south and um, even from south-south cooperation to north-south cooperation. There's a lot of things that the global south can offer. Um, I am I'm always in awe of seeing what the scientists from the global south are developing, how they are passionate to develop local solutions to local problems. But as you mentioned, Natalia, I think sometimes these they're influenced by these other bigger countries that have a lot of power in different settings. And sometimes they drown out the voices that from the global south that are that are really out there trying to change the, the conversation, trying to put forth new technology that will revolutionize their industry, their agricultural sector. So um, I, I, I agree with you and I think um, we all have to stay very vigilant to see how we can help make science the basic um, position for all governments. You know what? Uh, what I was wondering, Pablo, if maybe uh, uh, after the pandemic, the the feeling towards uh, GMO and genome editing will change because we see a lot of biotechnology being in uh, be, being done, uh, especially in vaccines. So we are engineering uh, very modern RNA and DNA vaccines, and 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 even the, uh, if you take the Oxford vaccine with adenovirus. So it's a GMO, and uh, do you think that this might change people's uh, reactions to GMOs and genome editing or, or in agriculture, or it's something that people keep on separate boxes and 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 never really realize that it's the same thing? I I, I as before this conversation with the pandemic started, I feel that people do keep it in separate boxes. I think you know, maybe Joan can speak a little bit about this, but some of the things we've seen is how the conversations about gene editing are turning a little bit more positive because they're initiated from the space of um, health. And so because we're, we're talking about these vaccines and we're talking about like, um, the tomato that is being grown to, to try and get um, a COVID-19 vaccine. All these uh, science advances that are trying, that our scientists are in the forefront trying to find a cure for this. I think there is a space and um, I think we've been seeing how the conversations on gene editing are turning a corner. Um, at least that is a hope for the Alliance. We're definitely, one of the things that we're trying to do is, is it's talk about these things in, the, in new spaces, in uh, trying to highlight how science can help us out of this difficult time. Yeah, I think we should we should take advantage of the opportunity, really. Yeah. You know, and that leads me to wonder, Natalia. You know, do you see anything besides maybe a better attitude toward GMOs or something? Do you see anything positive coming out of this whole? COVID-19 pandemic situation or just sort of, you know, in response to people seeing what has happened in Brazil when they when the president has taken a very non-science approach. So I'm just wondering if you're seeing any silver lining here in this cloud. I, I, I think so. I, I, I think uh, when, when this is over and when people realize that it was science 
that got us out of it. Uh, and, and they're going to see several scientific accomplishments soon. So, uh, for instance, now uh, we have uh, it, uh, the, the paper about uh, the corticoid has just come out as a possible medication. That's science. That's science showing results. Soon we'll have a vaccine. So we'll have more results to show people. And we say, this is how science works. Mm-hmm. And science solves problems in humanity, has, has been done for uh, forever. So when we, when we have results, actual results to show to the population, I think that we can, we can use that as a real opportunity, as a, as a real conversation started to, to, to draw people to science and to show them how important it is to invest in science, to, to speak up for science, to defend science. And, and in Brazil, uh, what I'm trying to build uh, with the Institute now is to create something that you have in the US, but that has never been a possibility in Brazil, and that's science philanthropy. We have never been on the radar of philanthropy here in Brazil. Uh, Brazilian philanthropists, they support art, music, uh, cultural issues, sports, but never science. Science in Brazil has always been public funded. And now this, the, the pandemic has opened a door to include science in philanthropy. So we're trying to build a culture here because, for instance, we, we don't even have tax incentives for people who want to donate for science. If you, do, if you donate for sports or for any cultural, uh, 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 any cultural aspect, you're going to get tax exemption. And I think it's the same in the US but not for science. We don't get tax exemptions here to donate for science or for universities or for research centers. And with the pandemic, this changed. It's the first time that the University of Sao Paulo has opened an online platform to receive donations. We don't have an endowment policy in the University of Sao Paulo. We never had. It's the first time this is happening. So this is something that I'm I'm particularly very happy and, I, and I'm going to try to build a philanthropic culture here in Brazil to, to, to try to get philanthropists to see science as an opportunity and as a necessity. Well, before I get my wallet, um, I wanted <laughs> well, to... Well, thank you. We accept it. Apart, <laughs> apart from, from, from this philanthropy aspect that I, uh, I, I find very interesting, and I... What about all the other people who want to participate in different settings? Um, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of, of everyone can help and everyone can put their two cents in. Um, so how would, how would um, we be able to contact, for example, if we wanted to engage in a dialogue, if we wanted to talk about this, if we needed stats or data, how would we um, contact your institute? Is there, um, just, just so I, I know personally, a lot, I, I have a lot of friends. I know, I know an ama- amazing scientist in Brazil that would love to participate in this. Um, so how could they get in contact with your institute? So we, we have a website. If you look uh, in Portuguese for uh, IQC, it's Institute Question of Science, but in Portuguese it's Ciência, so it begins with a C. It's very easy to find. So we have the we have the uh, the the institute website and we have the magazine website, which is a little more difficult for an English an English uh, speaking person, but uh, maybe if John can write it down 
with the comments or uh, because it, then it's revista questão de ciência, which I know it's very difficult to grasp, but uh, you can try some variations of it. You can Google it until you find it. You will find it, I assure you. And then you have all our contacts there. So then you have uh, institutional emails and phone numbers that, that you can reach uh, us. You can find me on Twitter too. Mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if, if you look on Twitter for Natalia Pasternak Tashner, that's my last name. But if you, if you, if you use only Natalia Pasternak, you will find me. You'll find me on Facebook, Instagram, and all kinds of social media. So, and then you can find the Institute through me. Maybe that's, uh, that's easier. But, and feel free to, to reach out to us. We welcome uh, anyone who's willing to participate and help and even write articles for the magazine. We're very open to that. Great. Uh, we really need collaboration. So uh, feel free to reach out to us with questions and suggestions. We're always open. Well, at least from my part, thank you so much for taking the time, Natalia. Um, it's always great for us to talk to other people who are involved in this space. And I just... Uh, thank you for the work you're doing, and um, I think that's that's it for me, John. We do have one more question, which actually, when she said, feel free to reach out with your question, somebody did. Okay. So um, yes. this is from Lydia on Facebook, and she says, I'm an educator with a background in research with GEs. I have taught seminars on genetic engineering and biotechnology, animal science, and in my current position, I teach microbiology. I was recently asked to teach an agroecology course. Do you think an agroecology course could also cover um, biotech or does that entirely go against the premises of agroecology? Yeah, it depends very much on the country, really. When I started uh, the research in agroecology, I see that it has different meanings in the US, in Europe, and in Brazil. So in Brazil, agroecology is very anti-biotechnology, GMOs, GE, any kind of biotechnology, they hate it. Uh, but, but, I, but I see that in the US it's different, and uh, maybe Pablo can talk a little about that, because I, I don't know exactly what agroecology in the US is about. In Europe, it's a mess. It depends very much on the country. Uh, so I don't think it's a, it's a term that's really settled and, and it's, not a, it's not a regular definition throughout the world. So I think that that's what makes it weird, really. Well, uh, I mean... The questioner is in the U.S., if that helps. Sorry? The questioner is in the U.S., if that helps. Well, I, I, I would follow... I think it's, it's very tied to what Natalia said. Um, I think... The problem with agroecology is that we don't, we don't have a clear definition. Um, I think a lot of people are looking at right. Hello? Okay, we can hear you now, Pablo. Great. I, I lost your sound for a sec. I think agroecology is be being viewed by different people as a movement and it doesn't have a clear definition. And I think that you're right, Natalia. A lot of people, it, sometimes it seems that agro the term agroecology is used for different things and there's not a concrete definition of what it is and what it includes. Um, one of our fellows wrote a wonderful piece, Nassim Mouvanye, on what agroecology means in Africa. And 
and how different organizations are looking at it in a way that may not be very effective in bringing solutions to a lot of their problems. So I think it, my initial recommendation would be to find out what this organization is trying to do. What are they trying to, what, what are their objectives? And I would never step back from a, from a possibility of a dialogue. So I would, I would say that it's about doing the research and trying to talk. I mean, I would always prefer talking than not talking, depending on what the position of this institution is. Um, so I, th I think it, it really depends on a case-by-case -case basis, but we really need to reach across the aisle so we don't talk in silos. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I, have, I have actually given talks uh, to very hostile audiences about GMOs and GE, and, and sometimes it's really well received because sometimes people don't really know what genetic engineering is about. And when you explain, they are very surprised. Mm -hmm. So uh, sometimes just see it as an opportunity to, to bring information to people who, who really haven't seen it. They, had, they, they think that they know what genetic engineering is about, but usually they don't. And I think it's always an opportunity to show exactly how it works and, and that natural is a very, uh, a very misleading concept yeah. So, yeah talk about i think it's all about communicating and keeping the lines of communication open and your conversation today has really helped us to understand much better what's happening in in brazil and what you're working on um next tuesday we'll have greg jaffe we'll be talking about how gmo regulations have changed in the united states that'll be at 11 o'clock eastern time then next Thursday, we'll have Mark Linus and one of our fellows, Modesta, talking about what's happening with the latest vaccines for COVID, the, the top five in the running for the COVID vaccine. So um, you can keep track of all of our events by visiting uh, allianceforscience.cornell.edu. Um, so I just want to thank you both for, for being part of this conversation, Pablo and Natalia. It was wonderful to hear you conversing. Thank you, Joan, for having me and Pablo, of course. It's always a good opportunity to, to show to the rest of the world what's happening down here in Brazil, even when, even when the situation is as grim as it is. So thanks for listening, anyone. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Okay, till next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>